Today's reading is Luke 13, 18 through 21. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The website Brain Pickings recently posted an interview with Neil Gaiman on the topic of how stories last. For those of you who are not familiar with Neil Gaiman, he's a prolific fiction writer. Uh, Two of his uh, books, Coraline and Stardust, were made into movies. Both of them are tremendous movies. But in the interview, he comments on how stories help us endure and make sense of our lives. And he goes on to illustrate with the story of his 97-year-old cousin, Helen, who is a Polish Holocaust survivor. And he writes these words in the interview. He says, a few years ago, she started telling me the story of how in the ghetto they were not allowed books. If you had a book, the Nazis could put a gun to your head and pull the trigger. Books were forbidden. And she used to teach under the pretense of having a sewing class, a class of about 20 little girls, and they would come in for about an hour a day, and she would teach them math, she'd teach them Polish, she'd teach them grammar. One day, somebody slipped her a Polish translation of Margaret Mitchell's novel, Gone with the Wind, and Helen stayed up. She blacked out her window so she could stay up an extra hour. She read a chapter of Gone with the Wind. And when the girls came in the next day, instead of teaching them, she told them what happened in the book. And each night, she'd stay up. And each day, she'd tell them the story. And I said, why? Why would you risk death for a story? And she said, because for an hour every day, those girls weren't in the ghetto. They were in the American South. They were having adventures. They got away. I think four out of those 20 girls survived the war. And she told me how, when she was an old woman, she found one of them who was an old, also an old woman. And they got together and called each other by names from Gone with the Wind. We writers decry too easily what we do as being kind of trivial, the creation of stories as being a trivial thing, but the magic of escapist fiction is that it can actually offer you a genuine escape from a bad place, and in the process of escaping, it can furnish you with armor, with knowledge, with weapons, with tools you can take back into your life to help make it better. It's a real escape, and when you come back, you come back better armed than when you left. Helen's story is a true story, and this is what we learn from it, that stories are worth risking your life for. They're worth dying for. Written stories and oral stories offer both, both offer escape, escape from somewhere, escape to somewhere. And then remarking on how Helen's story changed him, he adds, stories should change you. Good stories should change you. Stories should change you. Good stories should change you. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a person whose life is changed by a story. Not story in the sense of fiction or fantasy, but story in the sense of a narrative with a plot line. 
And that plot line often involves conflict and resolution. And the narrative, that plot line, comes to us from the Bible. It's actually a collection of stories that is stitched together by an overarching plot line of creation, alienation, rescue, and then the restoration of all things. And so it's no surprise to find, to discover Jesus as a master storyteller. If you read about Jesus' life in the Gospels, you find that Jesus is a master storyteller. And he invites people into the story of what God is doing in the world to redeem humanity and all of creation. And he does this through parables, short stories. And that's why we've titled this summer series, Short Stories by Jesus. We've just heard two short stories read to us from Luke's Gospel. I'd like to invite you to turn to Luke 13. Uh, There are Bibles underneath your seat if you don't have one and you'd like to look on to one on paper. It's page 873. Otherwise, you can look on your um, phone apps. I imagine some of you might have a Bible on there. It's hard to tell a story, however brief it might be, without introducing at least two main characters or a subject and object. If you think about it, our jokes are built on this. A priest, a rabbi, and a minister, there's three characters, go into a bar. The bartender asks, what is this, some kind of joke? Here's one with two characters. Do you know what Mahatma Gandhi and Mary Poppins have in common? Gandhi walked everywhere he went, which produced enormous calluses on his feet. He ate very little, so he's a very fragile man. Also, his strange diet caused him to suffer from bad breath. So Gandhi could be described as a super callous, fragile mystic hexed by halitosis. (laughs) Jesus' parables work in a very similar way. Most of his parables are three-point parables, meaning that they contain three characters. Probably one of the most familiar ones to many people, even people who are not familiar with the Bible, is the parable of the prodigal son. It involves a father and two sons. This one son who goes off and spends all the father's money, or at least his inheritance, and then the other son who is resentful, who stays at home. If you look in that same chapter of Luke 15, you see two other three-point parables, and they involve lost things. You have a shepherd with a lost sheep who then goes, leaves the 99 to go find the lost sheep, and then the woman who has nine coins, and she searches for the one lost coin. So again, three-point parables. Jesus also taught with two-point parables as well. In Luke 17, you see the parable of the unprofitable servant. Two characters involved. So what about a one-point parable? Well, without interaction, it's hard to have any action, right? If you don't have kind of a subject and object, it's hard to really create a story, at least one that's engaging. In these one-point parables... The parable is very brief, and the focus is entirely on the protagonist. We just heard two one-point parables read to us. In Luke 13, you have these two one-point parables, and Jesus, the, the gospel writers often put these in pairs. So if you're reading through the gospel and you're looking at parables, when you see these one-point parables, they will often be in pairs. Both of these introduce one main character. You have the mustard seed and you have the leaven. In the first, the mustard seed grows, it becomes a tree, and the birds make their nests in its shade. In the second, a woman takes some leaven, what we might call yeast, and she mixes it in a large quantity of flour until 
all the dough is leavened. So how might we hear this? When I gave the scripture reading to be read today, I purposely, I thought, well, that's going to be so short. Whoever comes up there, I didn't know it was going to be my daughter. Whoever comes up there, it's not going to have any real time. And, and the listeners are just going to listen. They're going like, is that's it? And they won't really have time to really focus in and really cue their ear in to listen to it. But I thought, you know, there's something to be said for reading that, those two short parables as they were given. Because the impact of them is in the hearing. Jesus' original audience didn't have Bibles, so they didn't go, now wait, what was that again? So they would have heard it, and perhaps they would have had a a reaction similar to yours, like, what? What was that? I just missed that. What did he say? What did she say? And so I felt that in just giving that the way it was done today, it would have its impact as Jesus intended for it to have its impact, and that is that it hits you, and you're like, wait a minute, what is that? So how might we hear this? Well, the better question is, How might Jesus' original audience have heard this? How might Jesus' original audience have heard this? Craig Blomberg gives a key principle in interpreting parables, and I've put it up there for you to see. He writes, Modern readers must assign meanings to the details of the parables which Jesus' original audiences could have been expected to discern. So here we are removed from the original setting, and what he's saying is that we must look at these parables and we must, we must look at them with an eye toward how Jesus' original audience would have heard them. Which means we have to be familiar with the context and culture of the first century. Which means you may have to do a little bit of work when you're reading the Bible. Because it wasn't written for the 21st century. And that's what causes a lot of people to kind of just give up is because they go like, well, I, I, just, I don't understand what it's about, so I'm not going to try We also have to read these parables within the context, the larger context of all of Jesus' teachings and sayings, as well as listening for echoes of the Old Testament, that Jesus was a person, he was a Jewish rabbi steeped in Israel's scriptures. So oftentimes there'll be very quick allusions to something in the Old Testament, and the gospel writers expect their largely Jewish readers at times to understand these echoes, to hear them. And again, that's where perhaps we're at a deficit because we don't read the Old Testament most of the time. And yet, to get something out of this, we have to have that in mind and we have to do some work to do that. In other words, what Blomberg and I'm trying to say is you can't just go to the parables and read them and attach your meaning to them. So if you're in a discussion group, we've encouraged you to be in a discussion group on the parables during this series and to get in with a a group of people and to really kind of pay attention to the parables and talk together about them and to listen to each other. You can't, it is not wise, I'll put it that way, it is not wise to go into that and to say, this is what this parable means to me. That's That's very 21st century American way of looking at any text. But it's not the way to properly treat these texts. Because it's not, first of all, what it means to you. It's, first of all, what did it mean to Jesus' original audience? And that's the work that we have to do when we come to the parables. One of the best practices that I'll offer to you, because part of this, and we're just, you know, two, three, two sermons into this, that one of the best practices that you can use is to make observations about what's included and what's not included as you're looking at a parable. And if you're looking down at your text in Matthew 13, both the mustard seed and the leaven are contrasted in two ways. 
There's two contrasting stages. There's the beginning and the ending. The contrast is between how something begins and how it turns out at the end. Notice there. What's not included? What's not included is any comment on the passing of time. What's not included is how long a process is involved for the seed to become a large tree or for the leaven to spread throughout the entire lump of dough. That's not there. In other words, there's nothing in there about growth or development. Yet I've heard and read sermons where they, preachers, pastor-type people take this and they talk about growth and development, but it's not talking about that. That's exactly what's not there. But what is in focus is the kingdom of God. And that's very clear in verse 18. Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like? Now, here's where what I said just about two minutes ago, if you were listening, that you would have heard me say something about echoes of the Old Testament and the rest of Jesus' teaching. When you hear Jesus say, kingdom of God, what should come into your mind? I love these moments. Everybody's staring at me. Well, you're going to answer because you're speaking, you know. But, I mean, it's a legitimate question because that's why I pause because when I say kingdom of God, something should come to mind. If you're a follower of Jesus and if you're paying attention to reading the Scripture and understanding the Scripture, something should come to mind. If it's blank, you need to do some work. need to do some work. Because the kingdom of God is a very important theme in the scripture. It's a very important theme in the scripture. What is the kingdom of God? When Jesus says, what is, the, what is the kingdom of God like? Jesus came announcing that God's future kingdom that was talked about and anticipated by prophets in the Old Testament some 400 to 600 years before Jesus ever comes on the scene. You see that in Isaiah 9, 11, 35, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, Ezekiel 36 and 37, Zechariah 8, verses 3 to 8. Those are all very key passages about the prophets anticipating God's future kingdom, looking out in time and anticipating it. And now Jesus comes announcing that God's future kingdom has come into the present in him and what he's doing. So 400 to 600 years of waiting and anticipating what the prophets said was going to happen one day. Jesus now says, it's happening in me. So Jesus starts, by announce, starts his public ministry by announcing in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's here. Again, if you understand what the, what the, the impact of those words that This was Israel's hope as they were in exile in Babylon. They're hoping, the prophets are saying, this is not the end of the story. One day, God will yet again redeem His people. He will bring you out of exile and He will do what He has promised to do. If you had been in exile for all of your life, if you had been born in Babylon, grown up in Babylon and died in Babylon, you needed something to hold on to. And now, 400 to 600 years later, Jesus comes onto the scene. He says, you know that long-anticipated kingdom? It's arrived. And it's in me. It's in what I'm doing. 
Now, if you were a Jewish person steeped in the words of Israel's prophets, longing for that future to become a reality, you might look around and seriously question Jesus' claim. Because while you've heard Jesus' claim about the presence of the kingdom of God, it looks small, it looks insignificant, it looks unimpressive. And that's exactly why Jesus gives these words. That's why Jesus tells these stories. This is intended to be a word of encouragement. The focus is on how it's possible for big results to come from small beginnings. In other words, Jesus is saying to those who are observing him and his band of disciples, don't judge simply by what you now see, because what will happen in the end will be far greater than what you see or don't see right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, do you ever wonder if your efforts for the kingdom matter? Do you ever wonder about all this talk about the kingdom of God being present when you really see when you see the real state of the world and the state of the church? I do. I have, many times. Followers of Jesus in every age have wondered if their efforts to work for and bear witness to Jesus are of any significance. Why? Because we often don't see widespread impact or change in the world. We don't see results. And this is compounded by the fact that we are immersed in a culture that operates by the, that tends to operate by the philosophy seeing is believing. Our culture is very visual, as was the Greek culture of Jesus' day. The Jewish culture was steeped in the word. You heard and you obeyed. But in the Greek culture, you saw. It was all about appealing to the eyes, and that was Jesus' culture. And because the appeal is to our eyes in our culture, our desires tend to be shaped by what we can see. And as a result, reality itself becomes defined by what I can see, which often tends to shrink life to being about me and how things impact me, both positively and negatively. Ronald Rollheiser writes these words, If we are not a generation in love with itself, we are undeniably a generation obsessed with itself. When we stand before reality preoccupied with ourselves, we will see precious little of what is actually there to be seen. Moreover, what little we do see will be distorted and shaped by self-interest. The outside world has little power to penetrate or even distract you. Your reality has been reduced to the size, shape, and color of your own inner world. It is not surprising that we have trouble believing in the reality of God when we have trouble perceiving any reality at all beyond ourselves. Some powerful words. So as a result, Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' activity can seem seem as if it's not present, it's not active, it's not real because we can't readily see it. And if we do get glimpses of it, it can seem small, it can seem insignificant. 
And so it can become a, simply a case of out of sight, out of mind. Because I can't see it, it's not real to me. Therefore, it's not compelling to me. It doesn't engage my desires, it doesn't engage my affections. As I was preparing this, I, the thing that kind of haunted me all week is I asked the question, could this be at the root of the seeming lethargy and indifference of the Western church? I mean, come on, let's be honest. If 90-something percent of America is Christian, why in the world don't we see a difference? I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about transformation of lives. And I wonder if this is part of it. We have to see it. If we don't see it, we become indifferent. Well, these two parables seem to address this tension of hearing and believing the words of Jesus versus having to see immediate results in the present. In other words, this is about hope and faith and trust in spite of appearances. And so the messages of these parables tell me that this is God's kingdom. He causes it to grow, and grow it will. The mustard seed will become a large tree. The dough will leaven, the, the leaven will leaven the entire lump of dough. It will be successful. I can tell you from personal testimony that this type of message has been the thing that has kept me going for 25 years here. Because I can't tell you that I've seen tremendous results from my efforts here. But I've patiently waited in hope. Waited in hope. Not based upon my abilities, not based upon your abilities, but based upon the promise of God. Based upon what the kingdom of God is like. And trusting in what I have heard from God's word. And that has captured my vision and my imagination. It's captured my desires, my focus, my energies, my discipline to stay with it. And I don't think I should be the exception. I think that's what we're all called to do. See, God's kingdom and his inbreaking rule will accomplish its purpose. God will reclaim his world. This world belongs to God. This is God's world. You know, you probably need to wake up in the morning, for those of you who turn on the news too fast, or flip on your iPhones, your iPads, or whatever iDevices you have. I mean, that's watches, and things are buzzing all over your body. It's weird. But maybe the best thing to do before you turn on those devices is to say, this world belongs to God. And he is going to reclaim his world. And as part of reclaiming his world, he is going to bring to pass what he wants to do in this world. He will establish a new world where righteousness and peace and justice and beauty and holiness will have the final world, word. And this brings us back to the question raised in the foundational parable of the sower and the seeds and the soil that we heard last week in Mark chapter 4. And it's a question, what kind of here am I? What kind of here are you? Am I listening to Jesus and am I responding in faith? See, it's not enough to just listen. 
That's what the parable told us last week. It's not enough to just listen. Everybody in that parable listens. It's the question of what happens after the listening. Am I responding in faith? And here's the kicker. Does my lifestyle show that I believe in the presence of the kingdom in this world? Does my lifestyle show that I believe that Jesus is active in this world and that he is accomplishing his purposes in the world? Is my imagination fired up by that? Is my eyesight open to seeing the places where God may be at work, where Jesus is building his kingdom? Is my life, is your life oriented toward that? That's what it means to live by faith. Imagine us being that kind of community, continuing to step into being that kind of community that anticipates God working. As Jesus says in Mark 4, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Thanks be to God.